You're listening to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists, sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I'm Corey Oakley, the Assistant Chief of Fisheries Management for the Inland Fisheries Division. And I'm Ben Ricks, Coastal Region Fisheries Supervisor. We are fisheries biologists who are avid anglers. We want to link the work we do as biologists to your fishing. Our goal in this podcast is to use the information we have as an agency to help you catch more fish and learn about our state's great aquatic natural resources. All right, guys, this is another exciting podcast. Just real quick, want to thank you guys for listening to us and sending us your emails and questions and all the great feedback we're getting. It's really exciting. But today we have Dieter Melhorn with us. He's actually just a regular Gaston, <laughs> Gaston, Gaston, Gaston County, County. When you hear his name, you're like, you hear his name. And I'm like, are we going to be climbing an Alp right now? <laughs> They'll be yodeling classes later. <laughs> I've really enjoyed spending a little time with them, talking about catfishing. Dieter, why don't you introduce yourself? My name is Dieter. I am from Germany, <laughs> and this is how we talk. <laughs> it is a little misleading with the name and the southern accent. So, yeah, born and raised Gaston County. You guys can probably check your wallets and see that you're missing $20 a piece. And I can tell you the numbers off of now. It's Gaston County. It's a great place. Love living there. Grew up there. My mom is from Germany. That's where I got the name from. But dad from Eastern Tennessee, that whole world. And so y'all met in the middle at Gaston County. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Of all places. Your mom came further than your dad did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she came a long way and she's actually talked about, she came all that way to a mill village in Southern Gaston County. So. But no, the blessing of being there is close to water, like we talked about today. I'm 12 minutes from a boat ramp, and my life would have been totally different in the fishing world if I was having to drive an hour and a half, two hours to get decent fishing. So, fish a lot. Also a guide, charter captain in the area, and uh, got a YouTube channel. Got a podcast, just like you guys, though it's nowhere near as sexy as y'all's is and as it sounds and don't have a nice name like y'all do. But. Hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute, back up. No one's described <laughs> no. this that way. <laughs> no one has described this or me that way ever. <laughs> but it sounds good. Y'all's show is sounds really good. Well, we appreciate you saying yeah, that. Yeah, it's uh, cool to see Wildlife Commission doing something like this because it's good information. I don't, there's a lot of stuff in there that I've listened to. Don't particularly fish for it, but it's like with any fishing information, there's little nuggets of stuff you can pluck out of anything y'all talk about that I can apply to what I'm doing. Yeah. I saw some stuff fishing today with Dieter. That's exactly what he's saying there. It's like little things that I can take away from my experience with him and apply it to my own fishing. And we hope that as the discussion goes on, that you guys can do the same. I taught you how to tell the difference between a male and female catfish without cutting them apart. There's some theories about that. They're still skeptical, I know. But There's still some theories. We didn't huff and sigh when I did it, but I'm telling you. Internally, we did. We're going to do this one day with a knife, and we're going to keep score and see who's... So, just so our listeners can understand the Dieter's theory is... And it's a theory. It's a theory. Is it even the theory stage yet, or is it more like a... An idea? Yeah. yeah. It's an idea. I think it's really... Might not even be a good idea. But it's an idea nonetheless. We have no data to support this. No. So please don't take this and roll don't with it. Don't write us about it. If you want to know more, you can contact Dieter. Right. But <laughs> Dieter's theory is that the male blue catfish have a wider mouth than the female blue catfish. And that's 
pretty much it. So, <laughs> That's <you> know, it. <laughs> I have no biological data to contribute to that, but that's Dieter's theory. It helped build some relationships on the boat today. And hey, guess what? We saw both smallmouth and widemouth blue catfish. blue catfish today. And I will say this. Did you notice the damage to the widemouth? Dieter's presumably male catfish. You're pre-spawn. I'm telling you, there's something to it. We'll stick a knife to them one day and find out. Yeah, it's not hard. I mean, you can harvest them. We can cut them open. We can do our own comparison. Maybe you guys can as at home as well. And just to be clear, the only way to it's already really, off the rails. Really? <laughs> no, you have to cut them open to tell, correct? Right. There's no real true way, if we are going to talk a little bit about science today, we'll just say that there's no real true way to look at a blue catfish from the outside and be able to tell whether or not it's a male or a female. So you do have to cut them open and see if they have eggs or not is the easiest way on the females. So if they don't have eggs, then they're probably male. But how would you tell what they are like post-mom when they've lost eggs? I'm sure there's something you do with there. with Right. We actually get this question a lot is I caught a fish post-spawn and it still had eggs in it. And the answer to that question is it is very, very rare that a fish actually lays all their eggs. They actually post-spawn, they'll reabsorb those eggs. They'll digest them, so to speak, just like they would food and reuse that energy for something else. And you can actually see the, the sex organs, whether they're ovaries or testes, but you got to cut them open and you got to really study it and look at it because it's not like it's a huge thing in there. It's Once the eggs are gone, it's pretty hard to tell the difference. You got to be knowing what you're looking at. So you can do it. So my theory or my response to Dieter's theory <laughs> was that it may have had more to do with the age of the fish and how fast the fish was growing and that a, a wider mouth or was, was more than likely an older fish than a small mouth, younger fish that was probably still growing really fast. That's still up for debate too. In all honesty, I know it's geek out stuff, but that's really interesting. I would love to cut one of them apart, take that odolith out, age it, and see really if there's any truth to that. It's easy to do. It wouldn't be that hard well, to do. Well, it's easy for you to do. For me, that's yeah, a little bit. Oh, you difficult. need some microscope and some spare time. The way cameras are on cell phones, you'd probably be able to do one, use it as a microscope. So there's probably an app for that. I don't even know where it's at inside the head. I just know it's somewhere in front of the dorsal, behind the eyes. You're in that general area. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's there. Yeah. So we went fishing today. We did. And we caught some fish. I actually have a little bit of catfish slime on my shirt here. You do have catfish slime on you. So it's helping the smell in Which the Which is a miracle that you have catfish slime on you because your streak of, of striking out. Yeah, I'm bringing it. Bring <laughs> it strong. I'm just going to let them talk, folks, because they have a battle going on between them on who caught what fish and where. Striking out was pretty poor. I mean, it's not often that we go on a fishing trip together that I'm not going to say I outfished you because that's not really accurate because we fished about the same. But there for about an hour and a half, every fish to hit the rod, Ben would start trying to catch it and it would come off. Am I lying, Dieter? Is that? Oh, I mean, it was an unplanned chain of events. And there. so this all began because Ben made the biggest no no of all time by bringing a banana on the boat. Now, he didn't bring a banana, he brought a banana moon pie. And that's banana enough in my family. It was banana enough. It's banana enough. I have always said that it doesn't count, 
but today proved me wrong. I mean, I literally watched you with the banana moon pie strike out on six straight fish. And what was funny about it was that it was getting to you. Oh, which... it didn't. I was not happy. <laughs> and in all seriousness, I mean, you don't hook every fish that bites, but that was a significant number of fish. That... Okay, there you go. Yeah, way to bring it back around. You're about to let him off the hook. Don't let him off the hook. Remember the one that was really sucking line off the reel? I mean, that was... One of them was peeling. Well, two of them were peeling line, and both of them got off. I don't know how that happens other than you bought a banana on the boat. I learned a lot of things today, some of which dealt with catfish. (laughs) We'll get to the science part of this eventually. (laughs) But one thing that I did learn today, and I've always said this, is everybody has their own fishing little Debbie, and you have to pick what yours is. And mine has always either been a fudge round, a star crunch, or a peanut butter bar. Well. Way to narrow it down to one. I went, uh, maybe all three. <laughs> Hungry. It just depends on the day. Right. But it ain't a moon pie. <laughs> Not anymore, anyway. And it ain't going to be none of the flavors of moon pies, <laughs> just to be safe from this point forward. I understand. I will enjoy moon pies from the comfort of my couch. I told you when all. you bought them in the gas station yesterday on the way here that this was going to be a mistake. And you were like, no. Your first words were, you didn't tell me they had moon pies for sale. <laughs> well, that's true. That is the first words I said. And then when you said it was banana moon pie, I was like, my son's name is Jonah. I was like, mm, Jonah wouldn't put up with that on our boat. <laughs> you can't have anything banana related. Anyway, with any fishing adversity, it's important to persevere and, and overcome. You did. And, you and did. we did. Yeah, we had a great day I on the water. Took that second moon pie away as far <laughs> as I could. No one ever saw it. And we started catching fish after that. So Yeah, we had a great day, I thought. We just fished the morning and we fished Dieter took us out, showed us a lot of different spots to fish on Lake Wiley and it's my kind of fishing. It's relaxing. You're waiting on bites to come. I'm, when you're in the office all day and you get to sit on a boat for a little while and just kinda take it easy it's actually a pretty good time and i did make you measure some fish though we measured a few fish that wasn't that big a deal we're kind of really good at that it's like you've done it before yeah we've done it before maybe but but yeah we caught a couple in a what 16 pound range something like that or maybe one in 14 one about 13 and a bunch in that nine eight whatever do you remember who caught the biggest one of the day that'd be me yeah by about Mm, I think about three quarters of an inch. It's a very triumphant trip for Corey. I'm so proud of him. (laughs) Well, most of the time, my fishing prowess is getting run down on this show. So I knew he had it in him this whole time. I've been rooting for him. I mean, the last podcast, it was all hell King Caesar day of Ben Ricks fishing. It was just fun to watch. That's all. That's all I got. Because it was eating at you more than it was funny to me. (laughs) You really had a streak of bad luck with hooking up with fish. As much as I feel, that that was really bad. The fact that the banana moon pie was involved, story will be told for a long time. Just gave us a reason. Sure. Whatever. You have to have something to blame it on. It wasn't my lack of skill. It was the moon pie karma. Yeah. So, but anyway, so the cool thing today, Dieter is a student of catfish. For sure. He sat there and he picked our brains about it's ridiculous. any number of different topics. I'm tired and I didn't do anything. So that was one of the interesting things. We talked a lot about catfish management. We talked a lot about length limits on catfish, why they work, why they don't work, what they're intended to do, 
And they were, well, let's, you know, you took us fishing. What were some of these questions that you thought were the most interesting that we talked about today? Oh, gosh. The thing that was interesting was we have a 32-inch limit on Wiley. And your explanation of how that may or may not be the best link to go with, basically, in layman's terms, just because you put a limit on fish, no matter what they are, doesn't mean you're going to grow fish bigger than that. And, you know, I was part of the group that originally got those limits in place. I think it was on Lake Norman and Baden Lake to begin with way back when. I think it may have been 36 then. And since, you know, they've expanded it, our biggest reason for doing it back then was just trying to limit how many were taken out commercially. Whether that had an effect on it or not, who knows? Because our fishery since then, all of them, have gotten better and better. And that just may be a coincidence. You know, that was the other thing we got that I felt good about coming after talking with you guys. We've got a fishery that's in pretty good shape, at least on Lake Wiley. And I think probably really for the entire Catawba chain. You can't have everything. You can't have giant fish and then a bunch of little ones to take home to eat and then a flourishing bass fishery and crappy fishery and everything. There's got to be some compromise and all of it. And it seems like we're at that. Some people may feel differently about it. Some people may want them all dead. I don't know. But I'm pretty happy with the way things were. And it was almost, it was cool having you guys on there just to give some feedback on that. Yeah, I'd say the thing about length limits, and this is true for all species that we put length limits on, is that a length limit is only as good as the anglers use it. Like, for instance, with the blue catfish rule that is basically on the Catawba Basin, some of it's on the Yadkin PD and over on the Roanoke, you can't keep but one fish over 32 inches. Well, as we told you on the boat, you know, how many fish are you actually catching that are over 32 inches? In a given day, that rule only really works if you catch 10 32-inch fish and you throw nine of them back and you keep one. If you go trip after trip after trip and you've caught one 32-inch fish in five trips, that rule's really not doing anything. Or if, for instance, you know, a lot of times the amount you can keep is a little greater than one. Say it was four fish you could take home and you decided, no, I don't want to do that. I want to take one fish home that's over 32 inches and, and the other three that I caught that I could have taken home, I didn't. Well, then that length limit's still not working like it, like it's designed to work, if that makes any sense. So you have to, the same's true with bass rules. We talked about this on the boat. You can keep five, right? And that's the statewide rule. There's some other rules that are a little different, but you can keep five and 14 of them. I mean, not 14 of them, two of them can be under 14 inches. Well, how many bass anglers do that? Nil to none. And the same is probably true for a lot of cat fishermen these days, particularly the trophy cat fishermen. They're not going to keep fish at all. So that rule is, it's basically a social thing. It's a rule that, you know, at some level makes anglers feel good about what they think is happening, you know. And the other misconception about that rule is that it is protecting fish to make it a trophy fishery. And it's really not. It's really not doing that. You're not making a trophy fishery. We talked about that on the boat, that a trophy fishery is a trophy fishery mainly because of the, the forage base and the productivity levels. Like if you go to like Car Lake or Gaston Lake, you know, where those big blue cats are coming out of, it's because that forage base is so huge and the food chain is so big, you know, that those fish can get to those really, really large sizes. 
you know, and it may not happen on Wiley like that. You may not get the 80, 90, 100 pound fish, you know, and that's because the food chain's just not big enough. That's why it doesn't happen on Lake Norman. You don't get 80, 90, 100 pound. That's not to say that there's not one, but consistently seeing those larger fish come to the boat, it's probably not going to happen in certain places just because of the productivity level of the lake. And another thing to keep in mind, people out there that are not familiar with these fish is they're not indigenous species to North Carolina, flatheads or blue catfish. Or channel cats, for that matter. Yeah, there were some flatheads, I guess, in the northeast or northwestern part that drained in Tennessee River, but they're invasive. I guess that's a dirty word to use, invasive. It sounds so bad. It is for the angler, but for us as biologists, that's the word we use because... So all three of those fish that people like to catch and eat their catfish, channel cats, blue cats, and flatheads, are all non-native. That's what the word we'll use. Non-native to east of the Appalachian, the continental divide of the Appalachians. You go west of the continental divide, then you get into their native basins. But we really don't know what channel catfish did because channel catfish have been here 160 years. So we're not sure what channel catfish did to the food web at the time. We do know what blue cats and flatheads have done. We have watched that, and we've talked about it on previous podcasts, whether it's flatheads consuming other catfish species that are native to our state or flatheads consuming red-breast sunfish that are native to our state, you know, and decimating those populations. And blue cats, it's just a biomass thing. There's just so many of them. They just push everything outside the way. You know, if you go up to Chesapeake Bay, they're struggling with other species of fish because blue cats have taken their place, basically. But we have them, right? So what are we going to do with them? We got to manage for them at some level. But the truth of the matter is because they are an invasive fish and they're very good at overtaking systems, we as fish managers really don't have to do a lot to them. They kind of have the foot on the gas and they don't really need us to help them push the gas pedal down any further because they got it to the floor. But as we talked about today on the boat, They've been in Lake Wiley since 1965 or whenever Wiley was formed. Whenever they watched the dam coming down from yeah. Lake Norman. Yeah, because Lake Norman was formed in 64, 65, and, and blue catfish and flatheads were brought there in the late 60s. And so from then on, they've been below Lake Norman in the Catawba Basin since then, you know. And so we're now approaching 60-plus years of having this fish in Lake Wiley, and so what you're seeing is, is just kind of the stabilization effect. You know, they're kind of getting where they're going to be as a population. And there's going to be ebbs and flows, but they're kind of getting where they're going to be. And everything else is adjusted to it. Some fish don't exist anymore because they're there. But other fish have adjusted to them being on the landscape. So, Yeah. Like we talked about the white catfish that we used to have in the lake. Used to be, I mean, fishing tournaments. Back in the day, you were fishing for channel catfish, and an occasional blue would come around, but you'd get into white catfish, and it was like, all right, we got to move. There's just too many. Now, you'd be hard-pressed to find a white catfish in there, and they're getting eaten by either the blues or the flatheads. And we see that really across the state. I was talking to one of our old supervisors a while back, and he was like, only thing I remember about the Tar River is just tons and tons of white catfish. And I just kind of <laughs> smiled and was like, well, that's not how it is now. And yeah. I was telling Dieter on the boat, if you look at our catfish data from the Tar River, it's a straight, almost an X if you plot our catch rates of both species. And the fact that early on, there was a lot of white catfish. And as flatheads showed up, basically those two lines crossed. And now we have lots of flatheads and no white catfish. 
And yes, it's undeniable that those cross. And they're linked. I mean, we've done enough studies and there's been enough studies done across the Southeast that we know that the introduction of these two species of catfish have detrimental effects on other native species of fish that belong in the southeastern United States. We know that for a fact. It's not like a hypothesis. We actually know that. So it is what it is, right? They're here. They're not going away. They're not going away. That's the biggest challenge is because when we talk to catfish groups, they're like, well, you guys don't like blue cats. You guys don't like flatheads. I'm like, well, that's not even important anymore. You know, like the fact of the matter is, is yes, if there was some sort of magic wand, yes, we'd probably like to keep some systems as original to North Carolina as we possibly could. But that tool doesn't exist. We have both of these species now, just like we're Alabama bass is another one that's coming our way. And we're going to have to learn how to cope with them as they spread. And eventually they're just going to be part of the system. The damage will be done, unfortunately. And we just have to learn what to do in the new reality we're in. Yeah, it's like nature will find it. I said at a public hearing years ago, we were talking about getting protection. And I made the comment that the biggest invasive species was a concrete dam. Because once you put that dam in, you change the entire ecosystem that you had there. And it made what was a naturally flowing river, stuff working that way. It changed. And you guys, since then, have been trying to patch this up, make this work, keep this person happy. And that's what a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, we talked about this is I love my catfish and I don't even know what a flathead tastes like because I won't eat one of my little babies. But there's people out there, there's a bass fisherman right now pounding his steering wheel in his truck going, this guy's nuts. I want to kill every one of them. You know, there's a lot of stakeholders. There's a lot of people that are fishing these same waters. And you guys have got the hard job trying to keep everybody happy somewhat and trying to find that balance. But back to what you're saying, nature kind of finds a balance, whether we like it or not. Like we talked about, you know, you're going to have this rise and ebb and flow, and it's eventually going to find a balance. Now, who knows what that's going to be 20 years from now, 30 years from now, because our fishery on Wiley with catfish has changed dramatically in the past 10 years. It's changed a lot in the past 10 years. It's changed dramatically in the past 20. We used to do tournaments there. It was five fish limits. And you would win a tournament if you could bring in about 30 pounds of fish. You'd have a couple of big channel cats, eight, nine pounds. You'd have some smaller ones. And that was good. Then occasionally we start to see some blues show up. And some flatheads would show up. Nothing super big. Fast forward 20 years to the day. 30 fish and the tournaments we have there with the two fish limit will put you, that's two fish limit because it's all blues and flatheads now, will put you in the lower half, middle of the field. 30 pounds. Yeah. And it's going to take 60, 70, 80 pounds to win a tournament now because of fish. It's really been a steep, accelerated climb with those numbers. And I know I'm formed to have been in the system that long. It's, Funny you don't have that many of them showing up, and it just seems like it really, really accelerated. Now, I will say this. There have been angler relocation programs, as I call them, <laughs> to where anglers have taken mature fish from Santee Cooper, Lake Norman, Watery, and they have been relocated. These are rumors that I hear. 
So just so you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before. The Wildlife Commission does not support endorse any of this. Not only do we not support it. <laughs> it is the blue light special. It is a blue light special. And because if you turn a fish loose into public waters, that is stocking without a permit. Correct. You have to have a permit to do that. So there's a very good chance that you could be cited for violation if you stop public waters. And it's not just for flatheads. It's for anything. Everything. It's like taking a largemouth from your pond out to Lake Norman. That's illegal. I mean, it just is. Yes. It's there for a reason, because we don't want these species to spread. We don't want Asian carp or some other thing that another state's dealing with. I'm sure you have disease spread, too, that's possible. Disease. There's a whole host of reasons why it's a bad idea. And, yeah, it may seem like a simple enough thing. Well, I'm going to just turn them loose down here in the creek, and the next thing you know... We've got this huge landscape-wide problem. Intentions, I get it, we're innocent enough, but it is a problem, and you could get a blue light special for it. Yeah, but I think that's what accelerated the growth. I said all that to say, I think putting, instead of just having these little fish, as we talked about with the, the quality of eggs you get from a bigger fish, I think when they did that, I think that's what really led to those fish blowing up in that lake, and it's where it's at. I also think you have... It's not only the biology, it's also you have a lot more people fishing for them. You have a lot more people fishing for fish of a larger size. So a cat fisherman 40 years ago was fishing for a catfish that was, what, 5 to 10 pounds? That would be like the fish everybody was going for. I mean, in my youth. A good channel cat was 10, 12 pounds. Exactly. We weren't thinking about trying to catch a 30 to 40 pound fish. Now you got folks that that is what they're targeting. And on top of that... They're geared up for it. They have the gear for it, all that kind of thing. So talk to us about that, about what you've seen. You've been catfishing for a long time, how you've watched this sport of catfishing kind of grow and really kind of boom and last, what, maybe five to 10 years. Yeah, it's, again, I think just that opportunity to catch a freshwater fish that is in that 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 pound range and bigger, that is relatively easy to catch comparative to like fishing carp. Carp's a little more technical the way you got to fish for them with dough balls and all that kind of stuff. Stripers, harder to catch a striper that a true striper that's 30 or 40 pounds. They're out there. And I think just that relative ease of fishing, the tackle is relatively simple. Carolina rig, fish finder rig type setup you can catch these fish on. Now, you can jack the game up. You guys have been out with Tyler. You've been on my boat. We got pretty fishing rods. So we got pretty we have- reels. <laughs> we got matching this and matching that. The gear's heavier and heavier. So it's really for all kinds of conditions. Guys that were fishing in heavy current, that kind of stuff. That's something now that is more and more feasible and manageable with the tackle that we got. And it's a different ball game. The other thing is, you know, it's like you were saying, a lot of this stuff seen on social media. I'm as much to blame for it as anybody. If they see somebody holding a big fish, they want to catch a big fish. They want to go do it. And they're widespread. They say wide, relatively widespread. Oh, yeah, they're widespread. Yeah, so. They're about everywhere. Yeah, I mean, you look in our major drainages in North Carolina, you've got a chance of catching those fish. Yep. There's really nowhere in North Carolina that you're not 45 minutes to an hour from decent catfishing. Man, I don't know. Probably I, closer than that. I think it's everywhere. I mean, there's not many places... 
I mean, there's a couple of spots I can think of that maybe wouldn't hold a really large, like, flathead or blue cat. But those are right more now. the exception. But they're the exception yeah. more than they are the rule. I think the mountains would be probably some of the tougher areas, a little tougher sure. that way. But, yeah, any of the Yadkin, Catawba, Cape Fear. Noose, Tar, noose, yeah, Roanoke. Any of that stuff yeah. down there is loaded with fish. And see what Zach Royce did, two state records back-to-back. You get that kind of publicity and that kind of press. And people are like, hey, I'm going to go do that. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen a growth in tournaments back in the day. Tournaments were, we got 15. I remember the first time we got 20 people in tournament. It was like, this is the greatest thing. We're going to be BASS next. You know, now a 20 fish or a 20 boat tournament, small tournament. It's a coffee can tournament. Generally, what are you averaging per tournament now? Do you you have an idea what that is? The bigger ones like the Southeastern Catfish Club, which is one that is on the Catawba chain. It's, you know, these are 40, 50. 60 boats, depending on the season and what the weather's like on these things. And people are into it. I mean, one of the things I've noticed is that they're, and maybe it's just because it's my algorithm on my phone, they're big into social media. I mean, you're big into social media, but the cat fishermen seem to be like, they want to take you fishing with them. Like, if you look at Tyler Barnes, he's on the boat, he's fishing, he's got his video camera, you can sit there and watch him fish if that's what you want to do, but their weigh-ins are live. I see a lot of their weigh-ins live on social media, so... It's definitely a tool that cat fishermen have used to kind of progress the sport and get more information out there, and it's kind of made it grow pretty fast, I think. Good marketing tool for sure. Without a doubt, the most colorful gear. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I thought Tyler was just, you know, maybe lost his head and bought all the same color rods. We get on Dieter's boat, and I swear the same freaking green rods that Tyler had on his boat. Purple reels, pink reels, orange reels. pink reels, yellow reels, orange reels, orange rods. That's for easy identification. I can go, we got a fish on the red reel. You got one hitting the purple reel. It makes it easier. Makes it easier. It was like being on an Easter egg hunt. (laughs) It was great. Yeah. We gave Tyler a hard time about it. We're giving Dieter a hard time about it. But I'm saying this because it's it's amazing how this fishery has developed around that. And you've got all this sharp looking gear. And this is not sitting on the bank soaking chicken livers anymore. No. You know, we're at a whole different world. It's like I said on the boat, a lot of this with the gear, the colors, you got guys with all kinds of LED lights that match their jerseys, that match everything. It's an emotional connection to it. People have the gear. They're excited about it. And while that has nothing to do with catching fish, it will give you the desire and the drive to go out there. I want to try out my new Hellcat rod and go catch some fish with this. I want to try out this new reel. I got this new Demon Dragon rattle thing that I'm going to put on here. We I'll get it. What it. We is do the and- same thing with our stuff. It's just not catfish stuff. You if know. you can't get excited about catching a 40-pound fish, fishing's probably not for you. Yeah, you just need to stay home. really doesn't matter what species it is. Nope. And, you know, for a lot of people, it doesn't have to be 40 pounds. It can be, you know, I've told the story before. I had a guy on the boat on a guy trip, and it was one of them days we were catching smaller fish, and they're five, six pounds, you know, and I'm catching, oh, yeah, we'll get us a big one. And I threw two or three of these things back. And finally, the guy grabbed me, caught one that's about six pounds, and he said, can I get a picture with that? He said, that's the biggest fish I ever caught in my life. And you kind of like, oh, you know, you kind of feel like a jerk for throwing all these fish back, you know, but. Well, he wrote to us and said you were a jerk. But anyway, that's, that's beside the point. <laughs> he loves me. But yeah, you know, it's a chance to catch a fish that is sizable. And like I said, a lot easier to catch a six or seven, eight pound blue catfish than it is to catch a bass that is that size. That's true. Yeah. 
it's interesting how it has taken off. It is interesting the money that is being spent on pursuing these fish and getting into tournaments. Since we're on that, talking about gear, talk to us a little bit about the gear we use today in case any of our listeners are interested in you yeah. know, suiting up and getting ready for catching big catfish. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, I've got really nice gear on the boat. I've got Hellcat rods, Catch the Fever, North Carolina Company makes them. Great rods. You can catch them on about anything. I always tell people those are great rods. If you can afford them, great. Don't let buying the best thing out there hinder you from going fishing. You can go to Walmart, spend 30 bucks, and get what you need to catch catfish. Now, with that said, depending on what's going on where you're fishing, you start getting into some current, places where you're having to chunk 8, 10, 12, 16 ounces of weight to keep a bait on the bottom. Having that bigger gear, heavier action stuff is going to help you. But myself, I've still got stuck in the corner in my building over there. It's called the beef stick. People have probably seen them. I think Shimano. I thought that's what you ate earlier on the boat. Yeah, that was one of my Slim Jims. Uh, I did have two of those, but it was this beef stick rod. Like a lot of people, I felt that if I bought a really big, heavy rod, I was going to catch a big fish automatically. You don't need all this stuff. You can do it very affordably, and that's one of kind of the nice things about it. But I run 30-pound line, which is probably heavy, 30-pound monofilament. More than I need. The reason I went to that was the old planer boards, and we use planer boards in the catfish world. I think y'all might have been shocked. It's my first that. time today. Yeah. Planing for cats. Yeah, that's a whole nother ball game. Not just planer boards, but I mean, they're like... They're big. They're like rafts. Yeah. Guys use them striper fishing, you know, dragging live baits. These are a little bit bigger, and that's because the drifting rigs are actually still making contact with the bottom. So you've got two to four ounces of weight that's on the bottom, so you need a bigger board to plane it out and keep it moving. But you don't have to spend a fortune. But if you want to spend a fortune, you can. there's ways to do it. <laughs> That's how all my hobbies are. Some of my hobbies are you have to spend a fortune. Yeah, I have several of those myself. So the rig we used today, it was a sinker. Now you had those snake, look like a little sock sneaker. You don't necessarily have to have those. No, it's called a Santee rig. It's basically similar to a Carolina rig or a fish finder rig, except there is a float, some type of float that is between the hook and where your sinker swivel ties into your main line. That suspends the bait up off the bottom. And you can use it drifting, which is what it was originally designed for, or you can use it like we were doing anchored up today. It's a great way to get the bait up slightly off the bottom. We had a little bit of current today in the upper part of the lake. That helps with some dissemination down there. You got up off the bottom. It's a nice, easy presentation for fish to hit. That's kind of fancy. You can go, like I said, a simple Carolina rig, fish finder rig, something like that, too, and put the baits on the bottom. I like having them up. Seems like you get a few more fish hooked up. You did not exactly have as much luck getting hooked up on them. Maybe you needed some. Oh, that's twice in one podcast. Ooh. Oh, I had to circle. The knife is in his back. But, I love it. If hey. I'm going to dish it out, I got to learn how to take that's it. That's true. Now, in all honesty, to defend him on that, one thing that can happen is that cork that is on there can get hit. And you've seen some of those corks, it had bristle marks in it from where they've been hit. Better thing when they drift, sometimes you get them loading up, they may be hitting that sinker. That sinker is basically about 12 inches long. It's got lead weights inside of it, like BB's little shot. And it's bouncing along the bottom and it's flexible. It looks like a worm. Very easy that those fish can hit that too when you get some of these strikes that you don't always hook up on. So, so obviously we went out with Tyler. That was all riverine. This today was all reservoir. Kind of explain to our listeners if they were trying to go target 
blue cats and flatheads, maybe channel cats, because we caught all three today. But by the way, I, we learned that that was the Lake Wiley Slam. I don't know. Who they came had up the with Lake Wiley Slam, folks. They got all three species. We got all three. So we did at least do something right today. So that's right. good. I caught the channel catfish. Just letting that know. We wouldn't have got a slam without me. We probably would have gotten there faster if you hadn't eaten a stupid <laughs> banana moon pie. Whatever. We would have been probably five more fish on us if I hadn't had the jinx on me. So. But explain to our listeners, like, what is it in your mind that you're trying to, and I know it varies year by year, so maybe take us through the year, because we did that with Tyler. Take us through the year. What is it that you're targeting, like, habitat-wise? What are you looking for when you're trying to target these fish in the lake? Yeah, like, we'll start now. It's spring. Bass are in some stage of being up shallow. Crappy have probably already done their thing. There's a few stragglers. Bluegill definitely up on the banks with some of the bluegill that we use for bait. I caught on it. The bottom line is that a lot of fish go to the bank this time of the year. So do the catfish. They're going there to eat all those fish that are going to the bank to do their spawning and pre-spawning staging. So there's a lot of time spent this time of the year trying that kind of stuff. At the same time, you've got catfish that are staging up to spawn. Got those males, the ones with the wide mouths that I told you about, that are also doing their nesting, getting all that stuff prepared, fighting for their territory, all that kind of stuff. So you got some of those fish all over the place, shallower water, deeper water. But my biggest focus this time of year is relatively shallow. That just seems to be the best place to target them. Now, about two, three weeks, we start going into June. Catfish are going to start disappearing. You're going to start seeing channel cats show back up because they're going to be done spawning. But that June period, I would say, between Memorial Day and July 4th, you're trying to catch a big catfish, just go to the beach and hang out or something because it's really, really tough to catch them. That seems to be when they're in the middle of whatever they're doing, the hen and the shein, and the big fishing is tough. I always find them, but it's tough. Come back July into summer all the way into fall, it's back game on. Fish are moving. They're starting to spread out, disperse, good time for drifting, covering flats. You'll have them eating mussels, eating on mussel beds. They don't really go super duper deep, but they will pull back to deeper water, deeper than what we were fishing in today. Mm -hmm. I've always said that I think the summer patterns are very similar to the winter patterns, and the spring patterns are very similar to the fall patterns and what happens. Yep. And then going into fall, great time to catch flatheads. Flatheads are done with all their stuff. They're in the areas, you can catch them, and usually if you catch one, you'll catch five, especially if you've got a lake like or a river like where y'all are at. If you're in a place for them, it, that's before they go into their, whatever you call it in the biology world, where they're not hibernating, but they're just horribly inactive. There's a name for that. What is that? They're a little dormant. There's a bigger word. It's a multisyllable word for that. That's something animals get. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> Stick with dormant. We'll figure it out. Yeah. And then in the wintertime, as it leads into winter, that's when it's a good time for big blues. The flatheads have started to disappear by then. We're talking water temperatures down into the 50s. The blues are really feeding. And like we said on the back today, I don't know if they're hacking on body weight for winter or their stomachs are in the mood to eat bigger baits. Bigger baits were good then. And that's really good until we start to get that first cold snap in January. This year, it came in December when we had those single digits, and it really sped up the decline in the bite. But it's virtually impossible to catch flatheads then. Still catch them occasionally, but it's really more blues then. Channel cats, smaller ones start to disappear. The big channel cats start to show up then. 
And, you know, that's when some of the deeper water stuff will work better off for you. And then, and then you're sitting in late January, February going, I can't wait for spring. Depending on what happens, early March, cycle starts over again and flatheads start showing up. Best way to tell when flatheads are biting, go to a Facebook catfish page and you'll know <laughs> because you'll start to see all these. I say that jokingly, but you can almost track what is going on with the bite and where fish are in the spawn by what gets posted on these Facebook groups. It gives you a really good indication of, oh, people are starting to catch flatheads. In reality, it's a good indicator that water temperature is starting to get right for them. They're not spawning. They just got finished spawning, that kind of stuff. So it doesn't tell you where to fish, but at least gives you some idea of what's going on. I find, it's funny you say that, in February, I almost always find myself going, I can't wait till it warms up and fish start. Because in the wintertime, fish do about the same thing for the longest window, but they get pressured in some instances. And so they get harder to catch, even though they're in the same exact spot. So what you really need is a cue for them yeah. to move and do something different. And then their whole feeding habits and everything seems to change. It's like a like that spring switch just goes I off. I think they feed a little less probably because they don't need to take in as the much. The metabolism slows down tremendously, yeah. But at the same time, I agree with Ben, depending on the species, but in general, they're probably grouped up and they're being pressured so hard by anglers that know that they're there. They just, they've seen that bait. You know, yeah. I've seen that bait. I don't want that bait kind of thing. And I think that happens a lot. And as soon as they get moving, everything changes. Yeah. Those colder temperatures, especially in the fall, late November into December with traditional temperatures can be a really, really good time to catch the bigger fish, the bigger blues anyway. That mm -hmm. is when most of our 60-pounder plus fish have come on Wiley has been in that December, November, December time frame. But it can happen at any time. The trade-off is you're not going to catch a lot of fish. If you want to just swing for the fence, that's a good time to be doing that. But the other fish, the smaller fish, you're not going to see that many of them. So in the summertime, so the only reservoir I'm really familiar with with blue cats is Lake Norman. And generally, the fish that we saw were always right around that thermocline, you know, in that 30, 35 foot of water. Do they do a similar pattern like that at Lake Wiley? Do they get in that 30, 35 foot of water or whatever the thermocline is? Because it's going to vary. Wiley, it, last year, it was around 24 feet. You hit dead water. That makes sense. And, yep. you know, anything below that, there's just no oxygen in it. Kills. So are they hanging out at that thermocline in the summertime? Right, yeah, yeah, right above it. And, you know, you'll find them where that depth meets a point or a hump that's you know start to see those fish you can fish for them suspended it works real good on norman yeah yeah you know, lots of oh, people yeah. do that yeah, i've yeah. done that it's a little more frustrating on wiley for whatever reason it's harder to catch them that way but gotcha. it can be done i don't know what the different dynamic is there but yeah you know, wiley gets a significant dead zone real quick and if anybody's wondering what that is drop a live bait down if you can see a thermocline on your sonar Drop you a bluegill, shad, whatever down there, and you'll know within about two minutes whether it's a dead zone, as I call it, because it'll come back up dead as a doornail. Yeah, suffocate. Yeah. I think one of the take-home messages, I think people have heard on this podcast, if we're talking about reservoirs and talking about summertime, is that there are a lot of different species of fish that hang out around that thermocline. You can find that on your graph, which isn't really that hard to do. If you fish right at it or just above it, generally, 
there are some species of fish there, whether it be spotted bass or whether it be largemouth can do that, striped bass can do that, hybrid striped bass can do that, catfish can do that. It's a lot of the predatory fish, they're seeking that cooler water in the summertime, but they got to have oxygen. So they go to the, the lowest level they can get and still have oxygen and stay cool. And so that's just a tip I would tell everybody, look yeah, for it. Sometimes you can get what, there's probably a scientific name for it, what I call a live thermocline to where we used to get it a lot more when we had hot water discharges and you'd get that hot water coming in and then you'd have that band on the mm-hmm. bottom that showed up clear as a bell and it was loaded with fish because oh, yeah. it was oxygenated water. Yeah. And if you got that combo going on, that is really a good place to find fish in the summertime when that happens. But there's that perfect dynamic of everything that has to happen there. So, Yeah. It happens at Lake Norman, but Lake Norman's issue is that it's stratifying and it's so deep at Lake Norman. I don't even know how deep Lake Wiley is, but down by the dam, you get this, the basically in the hypolimnion, which is the bottom of the water column, get this lower third that's got oxygen. It's really cold. And there's fish that love to be in that type of environment. And you'll see that. But what happens is over a period of time, that bubble gets basically smaller and smaller and the smaller. Squeeze it effect. squeezes them. Yeah. And if you can't get out of that bubble, some years fish can get out of that bubble. Some years fish can't. It will kill fish. They'll basically suffocate. The bubble will collapse and they're stuck and they don't know how to get out of it. They don't know how to swim straight up. Now, I always thought that, that they don't know how to swim straight up. But I swear we have seen with hybrid striped bass in the radio tags that we put in those fish, those fish know exactly how to swim straight up. It's like they know that the oxygen's straight up above them. And you will see them, they would be down in that bubble and then at some period in time, they'd swim straight up. You could literally watch them, if they were near the thing that pings, you'd literally watch them go up. So I thought forever and a day, fish didn't know that they could swim straight up to the oxygen, but evidently at least hybrid striped bass do. Or at least a couple of them did. Not saying all of them do. It's interesting. I don't know. Fish behaviors interest me. Oh, yeah. It's wild stuff. Let's talk about your baits. I run a lot of different stuff. The one thing we didn't have on there today that a bunch of people know from the YouTube channel is chicken. We did have a... I was disappointed. I know it's heartbreaking. I went with cut bait, fishing a lot of fresh cut bait. We all had live fish. We had white perch and bluegill in the tank. That's what we're using today, mainly because this is a great time. Those fish are feeding on those fish. We had the discussion, these two very smart men, about why chicken works so good. I'm trying to talk you over to my side. You didn't like my big mouth, little mouth theory. They hit chicken. I liked it. I'm just not sure it's true. <laughs> not sure it's accurate, but anyway. I don't think you like my mud theory either, but we'll get into that one in a second. They eat chicken, and it's not just little fish that do it. I mean, we have oh, 40, 50, 60-pound oh, yeah. fish on it. Absolutely. There does seem to be a time when they prefer it. I also believe that it seems to work better drifting. And it may just be where I'm fishing at more than they like it moving. Because a lot of times that's fishing deeper water, flats, places where there's a lot of mussels. I established a correlation almost between mussels and chicken and aquatic snails. He's a legend in his own mind. I am. I am. <laughs> I think he spent a lot of time on the boat by himself. <laughs> I do. Just I tried to figure this stuff out. But I brought up the amino acid thing. and. We didn't disagree. Didn't disagree. But we didn't agree. (laughs) Do you think there's any common ground there? Is there anything other than they just like to eat stuff? Well, as we told you on the boat, 
I think a lot of it has to do with, one, they don't see very well. They don't have great vision. So they primarily are sensory feeders, meaning, and when I say that, it's by touch or by smell. And so it may feel the same, maybe, maybe. I think it smells, okay? So I think it smells. I think it's part of it. So they can at least sense that there's something there. And then maybe once they feel it or whatever, they might think it's the same. I might go down that road with you. I just think it's a bait that they like. I think it smells. They know it's edible and they go out and eat it. I mean, blue cats are known to eat peanuts that wash out of Northampton County farms. I mean. Out of seagulls first. (laughs) Yeah. And out of seagulls that poop them out. Seagulls eat them, drop them in the lake. And. Because I tracked the numbers on it. But yeah, just so you know, the amino acid thing is Dieter's theory was that the chicken has the same amino acids as the freshwater mussel. And they probably do because there's not so many amino acids available, you know, so it could be that, but it's hard to know if it is. We tend to be simple-minded people, Ben and I. I'm very, especially in my fishing. (laughs) Did it ruin your day when you heard a redneck? The amino acid was that just like no, it did not ruin my day at all. I mean, that takes a lot more. The almost ruining my day was when I messed up six fish in a row. That was, yeah, I was trying to go away from that. Just a side note for all you people that are listening and for Dieter there's one thing about Ben, I've known him for a long time. There's one thing about Ben that when he meets someone, if you decide to go to Crazy Town, he's going with you. Because he wants to see how far you're you're willing to go. Here so, we go. So he's like, if this train's going, I'm hopping on the train. We're gonna find out where this ends. So. No, I love crazy theories because they do make you think, and they do make sure that my understanding is what I think. It, it challenges me. Yeah, that's because right. Because then I actually have to say, let me explain to you what I know about what's going on, and then maybe there is something in there that does match up. I'm not sure yet. You know, but the thing that was shocking, and I tried this with a bunch of different sets of fish. I was fishing cut bait on one side, and I tried perch, I tried bluegill, I tried shad. Three rods on one side of the boat drifting, three rods on the other side with chicken, just plain chicken, nothing added, none of the other stuff. And it was every time 71%, 73%. It was significant difference in how many more were caught on chicken. And it just seemed something more than. Eh, they just stumbled onto well, it. They do like mussels. I will say straight up, everybody that's oh, ever yeah. caught one knows that they like clams and they like mussels. They love them, particularly blue cats. Blue cats really love them. And so, do I think they're similar textures? Yes. Do I think they're similar smells? Maybe. Do they have the same amino acids? I don't know. That would be my answer to that. Scientifically, I can't tell you that's a valid theory because I just don't know. But they are very sensory, like I said, they're sensory feeders. They're not vision feeders, which is a sense, I get that. But they're more feel and taste than they are anything else. And so I get why they like chicken. I mean, I do. And if you can make the chicken stinky, it seems to work great too. You know, like a lot of people use garlic chicken. And garlic chicken works really, really well. I've used that myself. And my question there is, and I don't know that anybody can actually answer this. And we talked a little bit about this. When we say they smell, does a catfish smell like we smell through a nose and it registers that way? Or is it what is the smell more of a sensing something that's in the water? And I know this is going really into geek. No, this is what we do. No, this is what we do. I'll let Ben go first and then I'll follow up. So in some ways, yes. 
but there's more to it into how they smell than like, you know, if we smell brownies cooking, it's a different, there's an element of that, you know, because they do have nares, they do take water into their system, but those barbels that they have, their whiskers, those are actually kind of have some sensory for vibration and tasting as well in them. So I guess I, what I would say is they can probably taste better than us, really. Oh, I would think so, yeah. And it's smell is just like our smell is chemical related. Their sense of smell through the nares is chemical related too. They're sensing the chemicals in the water that's coming off of that bait. And I don't mean like oil or whatever it could be, but it's just a chemical interchange within their sensory system that they're picking up on, just like us, just like brownies. That's a chemical interchange in our, you know, nose that we're smelling that goes to our brain. Our mind just interprets it into, oh, that smells good. And it's similar. They're not, obviously, they're not smelling air. They're actually bringing water in to their nares. And if it's different than just the general water that they... Yeah, so it's almost more like they're tasting their way through the water. it's almost like they're tasting their smell, which is a weird way to say it. But anyway, I don't know. Science nerd moment there. That's okay. No, that's all great. I want to talk for a minute about the weirdest use of a spook topwater bait that I've ever seen. <laughs> I saw these. I was in Easy Bait and Tackle not too long ago, and I saw them on the shelf, and I was like, I mean, I get it. I mean, I saw it immediately, kind of knew what it was for and understood the Santee rig, and I was like, oh, I guess that's just a different different application, but instead of a float. A styrofoam float, which was the traditional way. There's a few rigs and a few manufacturers that are making it. It's basically a spook blank that's you can paint them all kinds of crazy colors. Yeah, it's a Zara spook without the hooks on it. So if you can imagine taking your split ring, taking the hooks off, you've got that spook that rattles. It's got little metal balls inside of it. It's rattling against the plastic housing. Because it's top water, it floats just like a styrofoam float does. So you're putting that onto the Santee rig, theory being... That one, it's going to float your bait up. Two, it's going to create a rattling noise that some believe attracts fish. And to a certain extent, I believe it doesn't discourage all that many of them. And again, this is another geek test. I've got videos on this where I fish those side by side with styrofoam floats. And the numbers were basically split. And we're talking over hundreds of fish, like 300 fish. One side of the boat, the rattling floats. The other side, styrofoam. It ended up being styrofoam won like 51% to 49%. It was virtually even. So the difference is styrofoam peg float is about 33 cents. A Zara Spook is about four or five bucks. So you significantly increase the price of your drift rig that you're going to end up losing. I think this is just... We're scratching the surface here. I think a bigger topwater bait would get your bait up higher. It will. A scoop mouth. What about Popar? Why don't we use them on there? I think there's the (laughs) misuse of topwater baits. Yeah, we have been misusing topwater baits forever. Catfishermen have got it done. Options are limitless here. So, yeah, you could do anything. The way I interpret it is it still is doing what it was designed to do, which is just keeping your bait up off the box. It's just a little bit different rig that's, again, if it works for you, if it gives you confidence, if you like it better than the cork, roll with it. Oh, and they've got them in every different color and paint job. And again, a lot of that goes back to what I said earlier. There is this emotional connection to that kind of thing. And some people are willing to pay more money to have that so that they can 
get excited about going fishing. And I don't put anybody down for that. If it gets you excited to go fishing and you've got some of these, dude, go buy them. You've got the money. Don't feel like you have to have them. I do a lot of the comparisons to show people. Don't feel like you've got to go have a six of random numbers. It ends up being like a $6 drift rig by the time you put all this stuff on it that you're going to end up snagging and losing. You lose three or four of those, and you're like, oh, God, I don't like fishing anymore. So here's my tip when it comes to that kind of thing. And this is not just, this is any angling, is there are places that you need to spend money, and then there's places that you need to save money so you can spend that money in the first place. And so as you're an angler, you figure that out. Like, what is the deal breaker? I have to have these, get those. And then if it's a different bait or a different lure and there's a cheaper version that works just the same, well, you just save two or three bucks on that rig. And that's kind of my advice is I'm always trying to figure out what's the cheapest thing that works exactly the same as anything else I'm using. Good advice. Good advice. Well, so we're getting kind of close to the end. We got listener questions. What other questions do you have of us that you'd maybe get an answer out of us all? Dude, I think I picked y'all's brain on everything out there. Didn't I, I guess I didn't like the answers. I was hoping for the bottom line is this. Here's the thing about biologists, okay? You guys know a lot. You know a lot of stuff, but it's not like a lot of people think y'all are like just going to come out there and go, oh, you need to go right over here to this here at this depth of water. There's a lot of variables out there. You know, answers no, to a lot of Most of the times, we're going to ask guides where we need to go if that's the case, because y'all been out there. It's great having you, though. It was great just to bounce stuff off of us. we got all kinds of theories as fishermen on why stuff. The mud on the side of them, that's a whole other show topic there we can talk about. But, yeah, it's a, there's no definitive answers that makes it. I'm sure you get that from bass fishermen and everything. Oh, where's some fish at that you've been shocking oh, sure. up? What's the answer you to know, it? The thing I, I would tell people is what I appreciate about Dieter and being on the boat with him today is, yeah, he's got a lot of different ideas and different approaches and different opinions and all that. But generally, you've thought through them. Like, you have really thought about them. You've sat there on the boat. Evidently, you're by yourself a lot. But uh, I don't know what that means for you. <laughs> but I wish I had more of that kind of time. You've at least contemplated how this works and how it functions and that kind of thing. And when you asked us questions, I thought they were actually, I thought they were really good questions and were really well thought out. One of the things I appreciate about you is that you kind of like a little mini scientist. You kind of put the, like you talking about the corks versus the, the spooks, you know, you kind of put it to the test. You're like, all right, we're going to fish 50% of these over here and 50% of these over here. And we'll do that for four or five days and we'll see what happens. And well, lo and behold, it's 50-50. Well, that might not be the most rigorous scientific experiment ever, but it at least gives you an idea that I'm not really gaining a whole lot of an advantage on this and, and maybe it's not worth my time. And I think that's that's pretty neat about you. My next test, I'm going to hit y'all up in advance and find out the correct parameters to do it within. And maybe I can get like a honorary, like, Asters or yeah, we print it all. We for print you. out those every day. We'll be glad to print you. Well, one. I can probably write one up on the back of this paper. That's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> What's the test though? Yeah. You didn't tell us. What's the test going to be? The next one. That's a good question. I had some stuff lined up with. I wanted to do the old hot dog, the hot dog versus because hot dogs is like one of those old like I just. A lot of these bait things come from somebody who's not able to go out there and throw a cast net and catch bait. Doesn't have time to go catch bluegill. 
and they want something quick, easy, down and dirty, and I just grocery store bait, as we call it. Yeah. And there's people swear by the hot dog thing. So that may be the next one is hot dogs versus gizzard chad. And I like it. I know some guys that fish hot dogs Test and they the do champions. real well with them. So be interesting to see. So before we move on to some of our listener questions, Dieter, if folks want to get up with you, what's your, your podcast, your YouTube, give them all your, how to catch up with you. Easiest thing to do is go to the website, DieterMelhornFishing.com. And I think you can even spell Dieter wrong and it will still work out and it'll show up. Go to website, DieterMelhornFishing.com. There's a link to the YouTube channel, the guide business, the podcast, all that. That's kind of the clearinghouse for everything. Great. So y'all check Dieter out. He's got a lot of material up there and could be a good resource if you're looking into the catfishing and that kind of thing. So let's talk about some listener questions. Now, I went through and I figured out who I owed. <laughs> decals too and i have sent out all the decals but you guys if you want a decal you gotta give me your address so moving forward Which on, we've been telling them yeah we have said that but moving forward i might be emailing you back if your question's selected and say hey send me your address again we aren't doing anything with these addresses i don't want to send you superfluous information i just want to thank you for participating so first question is about kayak fishing. And we've got a lot of interest in kayak fishing. We've got several listeners that are dying to get on the podcast, and we're going to schedule that and have a podcast about kayak fishing. The question is, what are we doing to stay ahead of the trend of kayak fishing? Are there any ramps or access areas that are being developed just for catfish? Or I'm sorry, just for kayaking. I had catfish on the brain. That's a good thing to have on your brain. Yeah, or catfishing from a kayak. There we go. And then also, what is the correct etiquette for powerboat kayak interactions? I'll at least do the last part. You'll do the last part. The first part is, yeah, we are providing access for kayak anglers across the state. It is a new thing for us, so we don't have them just everywhere. We have them in certain locations. And some of it is tied to public boat ramps. Some of it is not. Some of it is basically like a small boat slash kayak type access area. Some of them are pretty much designed for kayaks. So a lot of the parks are putting in kayak access. A lot of parks are putting in. So a lot of people outside of the wildlife commission, some, a lot of municipalities, a lot of county government agencies are putting in kayak access areas. As far as what we can provide, I would suggest you go to our website at ncwildlife.org, look up where to fish and you'll see those access areas. It'll lead you down the path of whether it's a kayak or whether it's a boat or those kinds of things. Yeah, so we're on the the new end of that. So we're learning different access types and, and how to build those things. we got engineers that do that, and we're providing more and more of those. We're starting to provide ADA-compliant kayak access areas. So if you need that type of access, I think the first one we put in was at Lake Sutton down near Wilmington. It's a part of the boat ramp, but it's now specifically that part of the boat ramp is for kayak access and ADA-compliant kayak access. So we'll be doing more of those things across the state. You just have to look out for them. Right. I'm going to say kayak, regular boat, our access areas are, I mean, I'm just going to toot our own horn for a minute. We make some of the nicest boat ramps in the world. The one we put out in that day might as well have been a city park. Man, South Point at Lake Wiley was unbelievable. Kudos to whoever did that for us. I mean, I think the ramps down east are nice. Yes, they've come a long way since I was a kid down sure. east for sure. 
then I went to that one. I was like, man, this is, I could spend the day just walking around the boat ramp here. Yeah, it's so, crazy. So, yeah, and you can put in a kayak at any of our boat ramps. There's no rules against that. And really, as far as etiquette goes, it's the same. It's exactly the same. If you're a kayak angler and you want to launch a boat at our boat ramp, we'd love for you to do that. You're welcome to do that. Don't back down to the end of the ramp and take 45 minutes unloading all your stuff. Before you back down the ramp, have everything good to go. Back down the ramp, slide your stuff out, leave it tied up, and then pull your truck out. So just be as courteous to not hold up other kayakers, other boaters, that kind of thing. Once you're on the water, obviously, a kayaker doesn't make a wake and a powerboat does. And the best thing to do is it doesn't matter if it's Dieter in one boat and me in my boat, give everybody a wide berth. And the kayakers are the same way. You are definitely responsible for your wake and you don't want to put your wake on somebody. But the same thing is if you go paddling, if you're crowding a boat and then that boat wakes you out, that's kind of on you as well. So the best thing you can do is just spread out everybody has a right to the water. No one's more entitled to it than anyone else. It's public water for a reason. And the best thing to do is to just kind of be courteous to everybody out there. I'll follow up. The last thing I'll say about that is everybody needs to be safe. When you think about a kayak angler, it's very low profile. It can be hard to see. You got to remember if you're a kayak angler and a boater for that matter, but a kayak angler in particular, being that low profile there's certain times of the day, early morning, late evening, that your profile is a lot harder to see. You need to be as visible as you can be, whether that's putting flags on it, whatever it is, to make sure that you're... And I'll give you an example. My son and I went fishing one day on the lake, and we were going up the lake, and it was foggy. I wasn't going fast at all. In fact, I was going basically idle speed. But all of a sudden, and we were in the middle of the lake, all of a sudden, a kayaker just appeared right in front of me like out of a fog, and that's what it was, out of a fog, here's this kayak angler, scared me to death, and they weren't very well marked. And even if they'd been well marked, I'm not sure they could have been seen that day because it was so foggy. And all I could think of was is if somebody had been coming down the lake at full power or at three-quarter power, at half power in a power boat, they'd have never been able to avoid that kayak angler. And so just be safe. Right. It's everybody's responsibility. Exactly. Don't wait on somebody to do the right thing. You have to make sure you're not putting yourself Just like in a it bad wouldn't be responsible either. of a boater to be going wide open or three-quarter throttle, for that matter, on a foggy day. They don't need to be doing that either, but, but you can't trust that everybody's right. going to do the right thing, so you got to take care of yourself. That's right. That's the problem. we got a bunch of folks out there, and you just have to be careful. I mean, it doesn't take a second for something to happen that's terrible. So, you know, just be careful when you're out there on the water. Even the most conscientious of person can make a mistake. It's also have a little grace out there because you can, it's easy to get mad and upset and that rarely ever makes things better. Be kind. So our next question is from Mr. Brian. He's asking about shad runs. You know, we're at the tail end of the American shad run right now. There's still a few around but most of them have spawned, but we still have them. As of today, I got a text from the news saying there's still some shad on the river, but his question was about the Trent River, and it's a kind of a little-known fact. You know, most people think about shad. They think about the Cape Fear, Noose, the Tar, and the Roanoke. It's a little-known fact that there's shad in just about every river in North Carolina, and the Trent River is no exception. 
Now, they're not going to be as abundant or as strong of runs in some of these smaller rivers, but there's definitely shad using these rivers, using these habitats. Trenton, there's a very good place to look for them because much further you get above Trenton, it starts to get really shallow. and The river gets really small, so you're kind of towards about where the top end of where the shad would go in these smaller rivers. But yeah, there's definitely shad in Trenton, and it's definitely worth a look. So that was an easy one. Then our last question is a little more complicated. Not to mention verbose, but anyway. But he's a good dude. I talked to him for a while. We had uh, Daniel Eggleston. He called us, and he wants to know more about how we handle our interjurisdictional waters. Long and short of it. That's it. Mm-hmm. So, Corey, how are, I mean, we fish widely today, so I figured it would be a good time to talk about that since we sure. were on, we were sitting on the North Carolina, South Carolina today. How do we as an agency handle that? We obviously have a border with four other states, and for the most part, most of our border is Virginia and South Carolina, so I'll focus on that. But in South Carolina, so first off, we don't have a reciprocal license, meaning that if you fish on the border water, you have to have both license. You have to have both a North Carolina and a South Carolina fishing license. Like on Lake Wiley, if you're in South Carolina water, you're going to have to have a South Carolina license and vice versa. Generally, the management of those species, we do talk to the South Carolina biologists, but for the most part, they handle their side of the lake. We handle our side of the lake. And that's pretty true across all those waters that, that are North Carolina, South Carolina. The one where we cooperate probably the most is on the PD River, which is the Yadkin that goes down into South Carolina and becomes the PD before it gets into South Carolina. We cooperate a lot there with striped bass, with American shad, robust red horse, which is an endangered sucker. So there's a lot of cooperation there. We don't have reciprocal licenses. So if you're in their state on a body of water that comes out of our state, you're going to have to have a South Carolina license. Now that changes a little bit when we get to Virginia. In Virginia, we do have reciprocal license on water bodies that lay across the border, such as Carr Lake, Lake Gaston, parts of the Dan River, those areas that go across that Virginia-North Carolina border. We do have a reciprocal license so that... But not all. But not all. You know, like if you're on Meharan... Yep, that's right. It doesn't count. But there are places, mainly... Gaston and yep. Carr. That Gaston, Carr, and the water bodies that are upstream of Carr. Right. So some of the Dan, those areas. So you need to investigate that before you go. Make sure you know what you're doing. But in terms of management, on the Virginia border, it's Carr is managed by Virginia. So we don't manage any parts of Carr. That is all Virginia Division of Wildlife Resources. And then when you get to Gaston, we manage Gaston. So that's all the North Carolina Wildlife Resource Commission. And then we kind of kind of co-manage a little bit, like the Meharan and some of those other places. We have meetings and have discussions about how to manage certain species that are crossing our border. So it is cooperative. We all know each other. As we've mentioned on the podcast before, the fish biology world is is very close-knit, tight-knit kind of family. So we kind of there's just not that many of us. And so we talk a lot and we have meetings every year, both with South Carolina and Virginia, and for that matter, Tennessee and Georgia, and talk about different management styles on those different bodies of water that do lie upon the border or just over the border and that kind of thing. Because the decisions we make do have do have downstream effects or maybe effects within the, you know, might affect some of our citizens, just like decisions we make have effects on citizens of other states. So we do talk to each other for sure. Right. It was that the answer? No, I think that you did great. Good job. <laughs> Gold star answer for oh, Corey. Good. 
So with that, I think, Peter, is there anything you wanted to add or anything that you feel that this is your moment to talk? I better say it. Diener's probably been up since 3.30. He's about ready for I, a nap. I appreciate you guys having me on. I appreciate you coming fishing, too. And like I told you, normally when I'm on a guide trip, people are asking me a million questions. Today, I got to ask the question, so I appreciate it. Thanks for putting up with all my dumb theories. No, it worked out great, and I appreciate all your input. You've definitely got a lot of insights about what these fish are doing, where they're at, when they're at, how to get at them. So it's a it's a huge resource to have you here on the podcast. Yeah, we can't thank you enough. We had a great time. You're a great host, and you asked us a lot of great questions, picked our brains, and I'm exhausted, to be honest with you, but maybe we got up earlier than I should have. I'm not sure, but no, we really had a good time, and I would tell people, if you want to learn more about catfishing, you need to check out people like Dieter. Check out his website, DieterMelhornFishing.com. And I think you'll learn a lot about catfishing because he talks about different techniques and different styles and things to do and pretty interesting stuff. So thanks, Dieter. Thank you. Y'all have a good day. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission's podcast, Better Fishing with Two Ball Biologists. For more information, please visit ncwildlife.org or email us at twobaldbiologist at ncwildlife.org.